rolling down the rural radio tracks once again for you. Another edition of Midday on the Rural Radio Network. And here we go with the roundtable to tell you a little bit about what you can expect in the upcoming minutes and, in fact, hours. Let's go to our the engineer of that big old train. That's Joe Gangwish. <laughs> woo woo. <laughs> We need one of the Rod's got one at his office, one of those oh, yeah, authentic uh, wood ones. It sounds yeah. like a steam whistle. But nice. coming up in ag news, heading down the track, we'll talk about uh, maybe having some new CME delivery points for live cattle in Nebraska. We'll hear from Troy Stowater. He's the president of the Nebraska Cattlemen. They had their mid-year meeting in West Point this week. Chad Moyer visited with him. Uh, the president uh, this week put a spotlight on the crumbling river infrastructure that's vital to our grain exports. Uh, we know a lot of folks, uh, Soybean and Corn Association, is very happy about the president finally paying attention to our nation's infrastructure and waterways. So that'll be in Ag News coming up at 1213. Dewey Nelson with Dean Hefter from Water Street Solutions on today's market. sets at 1219. And our newsmaker segment at 1245, that is with Val Dolcini, president and CEO of Pollen. Partnership. He talks about the recent beehives that were placed in Washington, D.C., but also the increased popularity of pollinators. It's so like we talked about before. Susan will have the buzz All right. on pollinators. A full newsmaker on it at 1245. And then uh, Chad Moyer is in we're, uh, Des Moines today for World Pork Expo. He talks with uh, Nebraska or the National Pork Board President Terry O'Neill. He's from Friend, Nebraska, and they are at Pork Expo, so an update from there at 117. Beehives in Washington, D.C. You're not talking about the Senate Intelligence Committee, though, today. No, we're not talking yeah, about yeah. the buzz because there's plenty of that in the going committee on hearing. Yeah, there's lots of that going <laughs> there's, on. There's plenty of something going on. And you can get stung, too, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, the Rural Radio Cannonball now makes a whistle stop at sports with Jason Jorgensen. Coming up in sports, we will hear from the new head football coach of the Oklahoma Sooners. My guess is not a, folks, a lot of folks outside of Sooner Nation had heard of Lincoln Riley this time yesterday. I'll admit I never had. <laughs> I thought it was Riley Lincoln. <laughs> yeah, Lincoln Riley. So uh, he is the new head coach, 33 years old, takes over from Bob Stoops at had enough. He taps out. As uh, as he said, there's there's never a good time to quit. Mm-hmm. If you're a college football coach these days, it's 24-7, 365. So we'll see how this uh, Riley kid does. You know, it's also going to be interesting to see if if Stoops actually, you know, we've seen it time and again where a guy retires and says, I can't stand it out here with nothing to do. And then two years later. Show up at a Division II. Yeah, his his batteries are recharged. (laughs) And he had danced before with NFL teams. There was serious uh, talks a while back. He's an Ohio guy. He almost took the Cleveland job. Luckily for him, he didn't. (laughs) Did I I miss it? What what was uh, Lincoln doing at, at the Sooners before. He'd been their he, offensive coordinator. Well, he was the offensive And a quarterback's okay. coach. But three years ago, he was just the offensive coordinator at East Carolina. So things move quickly yes, in college yeah. sports. So we'll touch on that. Also, Greg McDermott from Creighton. He could end up as new head coach at Ohio State. No kidding. Wow. All right. Bob, what do you have for us over in business? Thanks for leading U.S. stock index is slightly higher in midday trading. Investors have had their eye on Washington, where former FBI Director James Comey has been testifying to Congress. Americans applied for unemployment benefits last week. Hyundai is having a fairly large recall for some parking brake problems and a hood latch problem. So those are some of the things we're keeping an eye on. All these stories and more are coming up for you today on Midday. 
Paul Perkins is in now with our regional ag weather brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation and the heat is on. Yes, in just a matter of days here. Uh, today, kind of a warm-up act for it because the heat will get underway for tomorrow and last all the way into Monday across the region. We could see still some more scattered thunderstorms to redevelop for today on into tonight. They will gradually dissipate, though, this evening as they lose the heating end of the day. We could see some, we do have a marginal risk, actually, some severe weather across much of north-central Western Nebraska and West Central Nebraska on into the, about the western third of Kansas. And we could maybe see a, a few instances of some small hail uh, damaging winds, maybe some brief heavy rains, but nothing too widespread as far as any big severe outbreak expected. But some scattered thunderstorms expected to redevelop later today. We could also see a few more thunderstorms develop in the overnight over northern Kansas. Temperatures today a little warmer than what we usually get for this time of year, thanks to the south winds across the area. But that will change as we head towards tomorrow through Monday. Even warmer air on the way. We'll tap into some hot air over the desert southwest tomorrow through Monday. A big ridge of high pressure begins to extend onto the plains from the desert southwest and Rockies. That'll move into our area, that high-pressure dome moving overhead. Some hot and humid conditions expecting into the weekend and also Monday with breezy south winds helping to raise those temperatures in many cases into the mid to upper 90s. And when you team up the heat and humidity, it's going to make it feel as warm as 100 in many cases. Temperatures start to cool to seasonal levels for Tuesday in the middle of next week when a cold front passes through. There will be some chances for thunderstorms, but it looks like that will be mainly in northern Nebraska, a lot closer to an area of low pressure. In our long-term forecast, temperatures for Nebraska and Kansas expected to start out warmer than normal the mid to late part of next week. Then we will trend closer to seasonal or normal by next weekend through June 21st. Below normal precipitation in the long-term forecast, and that is in the entire period for Nebraska and Kansas, the below normal precipitation of that period for Tuesday through June 21st. In today's drought monitor, there remains no concern for dryness in any of Nebraska and Kansas. We will, of course, watch that for next week with these hot and dry conditions starting to take hold. Weather factors driving the markets today include dry conditions with a heat wave across the central U.S. this next week and intensifying drought in the northern plains. The focus for significant precipitation in the next five days will gradually shift to the nation's northern tier from the Pacific Northwest into the upper Great Lakes. But farther south, little or no rain is expected. A marked warming trend will reach the plains and upper Midwest over the weekend, with hot weather expanding to cover much of the central and eastern U.S. by early next week. That strong heat wave with temperatures approaching 100 in the Midwest will cause uncertainty over corn and soybean prospects, especially in areas where wet fields have forced extensive replanting in less than ideal conditioned soils. Drought intensifying right now across the northern plains. That's where much of the Dakotas is in moderate or severe drought. There will be light to moderate rain next week, but looks to be a little too late for a significant benefit for the spring wheat. Row crops will get a better impact. Intense heat also in store for the southern plains through next week. Overall, it looks to improve conditions for wheat after some wet and cool conditions. Row crops will have some heat stress, but benefit from having already 
favorable soil moisture in place. Looks like summer is here, and um, this 880, of course, uh, weather watch has been brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation. We're going to expect, what, at least 90, 95 degrees as we head Yeah, and like portions of west or like northern Kansas, we're probably looking at highs by Saturday into the upper 90s. So Comes with some humidity, too. Yeah, man. So, yeah, with what you don't get with the heat, you're going to get with some humidity, so it'll really make it feel extra hot, probably up around 100 for some heat index readings as we head towards the weekend. All right. And when you need to detail, when you need to feel even hotter, <laughs> uh, here's what you do. KRVN.com. Here's a look at ag information. I'm Joe Gangwish on the Rural Radio Network. Farm groups that have worked for years to bring attention to the state of inland waterways showered praise on President Donald Trump during his speech in Cincinnati, Ohio yesterday, in which the president talked specifically about upgrading locks and dams. The centerpiece of Trump's infrastructure plan is $200 billion in tax breaks for businesses that the Trump administration expects would leverage $1 trillion in infrastructure projects around the country. Trump said the nation's infrastructure is crumbling and a disaster in need of a serious upgrade. Farm groups who have pushed for a long time in Washington to upgrade aging locks and dams. Justin Durden is president of the Illinois Corn Growers. He said Trump elevated the issue of inland waterways in one speech. He says he's the first president in quite some time to acknowledge the need to upgrade our inland waterways infrastructure. He said those of us in ag that rely on our rivers to move goods know that without the necessary improvements to these systems, we'd be a distinct disadvantage as a nation. He says each day that passes with the system in decline, it represents a loss in our competitive advantage. The uh, American Soybean Association also heaping praise on Donald Trump uh, from his speech yesterday. Well, the CME Group may be close to naming a replacement delivery point against cattle futures after Norfolk, Nebraska was removed. During the Marketing and Commerce Committee meeting that was at the Nebraska Cattlemen's Midyear meeting in West Point yesterday, it was announced that two local sale barns will likely be announced as delivery points against cattle futures. Troy Stowater is president of Nebraska Cattlemen. One of the things we'd really pushed for was when we lost Norfolk that we could uh, list something, and we were informed today that we should expect next week that right here at West Point, Nebraska, which is a fantastic facility, is going to be a de- announced at delivery point, as well as Dunlap, Iowa, where the Shaven family are the principal owners of that. And uh, I had a discussion with him earlier this year, and I, and I really look forward to being able to uh, have those as delivery points. We're working on uh, adding uh, Kearney and Lexington, as well as that sounds like Dalhart, Texas is going to be. And this is important when we get into delivery month that we have enough potential volume to accommodate deliveries for that time period. So it's a real important issue. Committee Chair uh, John Schrader of COZAD, he says they've also been working with CME Group on the possibility of dynamic cattle future specifications that would incorporate a three-year rolling average for percentage choice and carcass weights. Well, the National Pork Board and USDA are creating a secure pork supply plan, and that'll help America's hog farmers respond quickly and successfully to a major threat such as a foreign animal disease. The Secure Pork Plan will provide procedures that pork producers, processors, and federal and state agencies agree are feasible and should an FAD strike. Terry O'Neill is from Friend, Nebraska. He's president of the National Pork Board. So for us, we want a plan in place where we can tie into, we're looking at, a, at a Texas A&M through um, 
a system they call AgConnect, which is a database that farmers can plug into, get their PREM IDs in, in there, uh, get their uh, state vets information in there, and any kind of information that that farm has on movement, so we know in case there is a, a foot and mouth disease or a foreign animal disease that blocks trade that comes into the country, we can be more effective in getting back to normal business. An Iowa State University study estimates potential revenue losses to U.S. pork and beef industries from an FMD outbreak would run $12.8 billion per year over a 10-year period. Related losses to corn and soybean markets over a decade combined could be close to $69 billion. For more ag news, go to RuralRadio.com. I'm Joe Gangwish on the Rural Radio Network. In the grain markets today, well, we've come off the highs. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. We're joined by Dean Hefta, Water Street Solutions. Dean, let's touch on the spring wheat market because that was the key right here as far as the rally was concerned. What's happening? Yeah, you've seen spring wheat is up as much as uh, around 26 that today it's up about 13 it's pulled back a little bit that's spilled over to the other grains and you know really it's continued outlook as far as weather this weekend we're going to have continued hot dry weather for the northern plains and some of that stuff in south dakota north dakota is kind of on the edge of uh, or it's already gone so you're seeing expectation for supply to decrease um you had pretty active corn action here today but it's run into resistance up in that 390 area and seen some some uh selling or buying exhaustion here and we'll see how we can close this this last hour uh with one day to go of the week and the WASDE report tomorrow and what about basis levels have they been uh, weaker or stronger uh, you know, when you look at the change in the last week across the U.S., um, Kansas has actually held on to its basis. The eastern Corn Belt has been okay in some pockets in the main of the Corn Belt, but many areas that are, especially if they're rail dependent, um, uh, and a lot of the heart of the Corn Belt up into the northern plains have really gotten beat up. They're relying on rail. They've uh, they've really beat up the, the freight rates, and that's uh, had a quite a devastating effect on some of the areas for basis. We're talking with Dean Hefta of Water Street Solutions. Did you see anything out of this export sales report this morning? Yeah, they were uh, they were kind of disappointing, but not necessarily unexpected. So kind of blasé. There was a little bit of cancellation, but uh, you know we're still holding on to the inspections that come out each Monday. It's just that uh, today's exports were uh, a little bit on the light side. They always say it's not how you open, it's how you close. It appears that will be our focus of attention this afternoon, too. That's right, yeah. Looking ahead, tomorrow's report. Is there something in that report that we really need to focus on, or will the whole report be of interest to everybody? Yeah, I, not much huge, uh, I, I would say, surprise expectation. Uh, ex- the market's planning on um, corn stocks to be down a bit uh, because of demand being good. Um, soy to be a little bit lower, not much change on old crop wheat. Uh, old crop wheat, so um, you know, not uh, not a lot going on. But see what they do on wheat production with some of the uh, developing drought will be one thing to be watching. Now, in soybean trading, are we still setting ourselves up for a little negative trend here, intermediate wise? Yeah, I, I think we've I think we've uh, posted a pretty good bottom here to start the month with, 
and we've seen some short short covering, and it's really going to be dependent on uh, Chinese action and uh, the summer weather forecast. It looks like we're going to be hot and dry into the 4th of July, but the key will be what is the reproductive stage as we move into July, August look like for both corn and beans. Thanks, Dean. Dean Hefta, Water Street Solutions. Go to waterstreet.org or call them at 866-249-2528. Of course, we're looking for a higher likelihood that the longs are going to take profits today before USDA's numbers come out tomorrow at 11 o'clock Central Time. And one analyst said it's probably going to happen in soybeans since they could see the bigger supply increase. Dewey Nelson on the World Radio Network. It's midday on the Rural Radio Network and Sports Time with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, Bob Stoops had been the longest-tenured active head football coach. Not anymore. Stoops retired after 18 seasons in Oklahoma yesterday, finishing up with a record of 190-48, and winning 10 Big 12 titles in the 2000 National Championship. Now, the 56-year-old said the time was just right to step down, but adds that health had nothing to do with his decision. The Sooners moved quickly to name a replacement, elevating offense coordinator Lincoln Riley to the top spot. Wow, you know, what a day. Uh, a, dra- a day as a, you know, as a young guy, as a coach, when you, you know, decide that you want to do this, you just, these are things you just dream about. And uh, I, I feel like I'm honestly living a dream right now. The 33-year-old Riley becomes the youngest head coach in Division I football. Creighton men's basketball coach Greg McDermott was offered the Ohio State head coaching job. However, this morning, McDermott tweeted that he's happy to be the coach of the Creighton Blue Jays and looking forward to many more years in Omaha. McDermott met with Ohio State officials last night. Of course, he has spent the last seven years as the head coach of the Jays. Reigning national champion North Carolina will host Michigan, and Duke will visit Indiana in this year's Big Ten ACC Challenge. The matchups for the made-for-TV event were announced today. Now Nebraska will play Boston College. Iowa will play at Virginia Tech. Well, somewhere between the catfish lobbing, A-list national anthem singers, and Charles Barkley's surprise cameo, there's been another notable development during the Stanley Cup Final. A series has broken out, perhaps the seeds of an upset, too. A week ago, the Nashville Predators headed home down 2-0 to the defending Stanley Cup champion Pittsburgh Penguins, but now it's a series all tied up at two games apiece. Game 5 is set for tonight. Kevin Durant drained a big three-pointer with 45 seconds left and scored 31 points as Golden State moved within one win of postseason perfection and payback. The Warriors rallied to beat the Cavaliers last night to take a commanding three games to none lead in the NBA Finals. And the surprising Rockies, who lead the National League with 38 wins, get a tough test when they open up a four-game series at Wrigley Field against the World Series champion Cubs. Colorado is a season-best 15 games over 500 and has outscored its opponents 32 to six during this four-game winning streak. Tyler Chatwood starts against Chicago lefty John Lester. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. There's a 30% chance of showers and thunderstorms mainly after 5 o'clock, partly sunny with a high near 84. For tonight, a 30% chance of showers and thunderstorms before 7, partly cloudy with a low around 61. And then for you Friday, it was sunny with a high near 90. South winds at 5 to 10 miles an hour. From the KRVN News Center, I'm Scott Foster. 
The 2017 Pony Express re-ride passed through Dawson County on Wednesday and is making its way to exit Nebraska into Wyoming at 7 o'clock today. When the re-ride is finished, the Mochilla and over 600 riders will have covered 1,966 miles through eight states, the most amount of miles covered right here in Nebraska. Out of the 565 total miles traveled in Nebraska, Gothenburg native D. Zentner rode about 11 miles starting at Fort Kearney. Zentner explains why this re-ride is important to U.S. history. I think it's important for everybody to know, especially not just in the area that we're in, but the area that you know everybody's in when it comes to the United States. I think everybody should know part of United States history, um, every part of it, no matter whether you're living in eastern uh, United States or western United States or, or where, but to know that the, the history continues and it, it repeats itself. This year is Zentner's first time riding for the National Pony Express Association and plans to continue for future annual re-rides. As it went through Gothenburg, riders gathered at the original site of the preserved Pony Express Midway Station on the 96 Ranch south of Gothenburg. Each rider there signed the mochilla that is carrying over a thousand letters in destination for Sacramento, California. The Buffalo Common Storytelling and Music Festival Friday and Saturday, June 9th and 10th in McCook celebrates stories about the heartland. Storyteller Kim Whitecamp, a nationally known storyteller, along with Grammy Award winners Frank Sullivan and Dirty Kitchen, bring their talents to this year's festival. Mary Dooland of McCook says Whitecamp will tell about her experiences. Kim, you know, talks about how she was the red-headed um, middle child of exhausted parents. <laughs> she grew up enjoying being the middle child and living outdoors and enjoys now the role of telling the stories of her imagination and of her growing up and experiences. And usually, you know, when you're listening, you start to relate to, I've done that, I know exactly how that is, and, and you create your own stories, which kind of, you know, then snowballs as we talk about community stories and people start to relate to things that have happened to them as well. For more information on storytelling events, venues, and ticket prices, visit buffalocommons.org. As the severe weather season moves on, remember, the Weather Watch never sleeps. In the News Center, I'm Scott Foster. One out of every three bites of food you take is thanks to a pollinator. Good afternoon, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Just last week, a new set of beehives were placed at the vice president's residence. I caught up with Val Dulcini, president and CEO of Pollinator Partnership, to find out about the increasing popularity of pollinators. Absolutely. You know, we've got Pollinator Week coming up. That's going to be the week of uh, June 19. And, you know, Pollinator Week has been around now for a number of years, and it's usually something that the U.S. Department of Agriculture gets involved with. And this year we'll have proclamations from nearly every governor in the United States uh, noting that this is Pollinator Week. And I think that it symbolizes a national interest in pollinator health and habitat and conservation issues. You know, one out of every three bites of food is positively uh, benefited by the activity of a pollinator. It could be a managed honeybee, or it could be uh, a native bee, or it could be a butterfly. There are lots of pollinators out there that are working to, you know, make sure that both our wildlands and our working lands uh, have what they need to produce our food, fuel, and fiber. So I think that the 
hive that the vice president's wife, Mrs. Pence, has put uh, out on the grounds of the Naval Observatory is just a great example of how Americans can be involved in their own backyards to ensure that pollinator health issues are front and center in the conversation that we're all having around our food systems. You know, Michelle Obama had hives on the White House garden when uh, she was living there, and many millions of Americans around the nation have hives in their own backyards, and they're either, you know, selling the honey that's produced or eating it themselves or sharing it with neighbors and so I think this is a great thing. Do you think, Val, that there's, a, there's become a new interest and in, uh, revitalization, shall we say, of the pollinator industry, not only from, from the perspective of maybe having the pollinators, but planting for pollinators? Well, certainly, you know, I think people are more aware of, you know, planting things in their own yards that attract pollinators and provide the kind of forage for pollinators that are so critical. You know, we... Uh, many of us live in urban environments, and you don't always think about those places as being pollinator-friendly, but my first day on the job last week in Washington, D.C. was helping third graders at a local school on Capitol Hill harvest honey, and that honey came from bees that uh, you know are living in hives in Washington, D.C., not too far away from the school, so... You know, whether you're in an urban environment or a suburban or more rural environment, I think there's always room to uh, either host a hive in your backyard, and some folks can't do that, but you can certainly plant a nice pollinator garden, and we at the Pollinator Partnership are a part of a coalition called the Million Pollinator Garden Network, and we've got, uh, you know, organizations and folks all over the country who are planting pollinator-friendly flowers in their backyard to draw the bees and the butterflies and other pollinators in. Uh, during Pollinator Week, I'm going to go up to New York City, where we're going to light the Empire State Building uh, on the 26th with yellow and black lighting there to signify Pollinator Week. The following week, I'm going to go up to Niagara Falls with some of our Canadian staff, and they're actually going to light Niagara Falls, the color of honeybees too so there's a lot of interest around the globe truly and certainly here in north america in making sure that we're all doing what we can to maintain a good environment for pollinators whether they're managed honeybees or native pollinators and to create the kind of habitat and forage that's so essential for these hard-working uh, little animals and not to mention the fact that it makes your yard look so much more beautiful having those different <laughs> flower beds Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there are multiple uh, benefits in planting a nice pollinator garden, not the least of which, of course, is just the aesthetic beauty. But uh, it's really critical. And I think, you know, when we look, step back a little bit and look more broadly at these kinds of issues around conservation and environmental protection, it's really essential that, uh, you know, we look at bees as kind of the canary in the coal mine. and We look at them in, in the sense of a healthy pollinator population is going to represent, uh, you know, a lot of local and regional biodiversity, and that creates a more healthy, you know, natural ecosystem, both for production agriculture, certainly, which relies on pollinators, certainly. My, my home state of California uh, grows all kinds of things that uh, wouldn't succeed without a hardworking honeybee, like the almonds, for example. But it's something that, um, you know, really represents a commitment that we all share, I think, towards a healthy environment and a healthy and productive working landscape. Well, we here in Nebraska have seen in the last couple of weeks extensive amount of semis moving in uh, from the south that are carrying yep. honeybee colonies headed north 
to find new grounds for the for the summertime. They really move them all over the nation. You know, there are bees that winter in the Dakotas and then are brought down to California early in the calendar year to begin the process of pollinating the orchards in the Great Central Valley. You know, then those bees might go to Texas or perhaps Florida. So there's always, you know, a semi-loaded with beehives moving around the nation. And, you know, there have been real challenges with bee health issues, and that's something that the Pollinator Partnership and many other organizations have been very involved in. Uh, we're a group that's led by good sound science. Comments with Val Dulcini. I'm Susan Littlefield on the World Radio Network. Back on the Rural Radio Network. Kind of an up and down day in cattle futures. Joining us, Joe Teal at Great Plains Commodities. What happened today? Uh, not much. Boy, I'll tell you what. It was uh, kind of a quiet session. Uh, we started out a little bit higher and then uh, ended up being mixed at the end of the day. But uh, just going around in circles, it seemed like. Uh, uh, really nothing uh, to change uh, anything in the market uh, today. So uh, the market just kind of biding uh, some time, awaiting uh, some different news. Cutouts were a little bit better at noon. Uh, uh, haven't uh, we've heard some cattle trading at, at a little bit higher money, but uh, didn't seem to uh, really have a real effect on the market because it wasn't uh, so far. It hasn't been a lot of numbers. The uh, feeders though kind of came under some pressure when the corn uh, rallied. But uh, it's fallen back off its highs now, and uh, but uh, the uh, feeders just never recovered and uh, finishing lower for the day. Over in the hogs, a little bit higher. Uh, the index continues to climb. Cash uh, more towards steady today, but uh, still considering the premiums, uh, no problem there. Cutouts a little bit higher at noon. That kept. Uh, some support in the market uh, throughout the remainder of the day. So we end up uh, pretty much a very quiet, choppy uh, trading session, with the possible exception of the hogs being uh, a little bit firmer. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. Cattle slaughter so far this week estimated at 466,000. Last week we had a holiday. 19,000 more than the same week a year ago. Hog slaughter, 1,754,000, 81,000 more than one year ago. Chad Moyer with you on the Rural Radio Network from Des Moines, Iowa, where World Pork Expo is underway. Let's visit uh, with today with uh, the new president of the National Pork Board, Terry O'Neill. Terry, thanks for visiting with us here today. Of course, a pork producer from Friend, Nebraska. You, I've been anticipating this for a while. We can finally call you president of the National Pork Board. What does that mean to you? Yes, you can, Chad. You can finally call me president as of yesterday. And it means a lot to me. It's something I've thought about for a long time. And I'm just looking forward to this next year as serving the pork producers of both Nebraska and the United States and uh, getting things done and moving some of this pork. So you laid out what you called three goals for the National Pork Board to stay front and center with consumers. What are the goals to make sure we keep moving that pork, Terry? Okay, our main goals at Pork Board are to build consumer trust because, quite frankly, consumers need to trust us to buy from us. Driving sustainable production, this is where it goes back to the producers. Now, the research we do, the education we do, the producer services we provide, this is the 
the driving sustainable production part. And then finally, growing consumer demand. The, the lion's share of our dollars goes to uh, building consumer demand because we need to have promotion to sell our products. So that's where a lot of our dollars go to. Uh, we just got through a budget uh, cycle here, and I believe um, two-thirds of our dollars are going of our program dollars are going to that. Okay, to so marketing. yeah. Now tell me, expand on that a little bit more. So, what are the priorities? How are we going to go about okay, doing great. that? All right, we'll get a little more deeper in that. We we feel very uh, we feel it's very important to talk about the three M's. We know the future of marketing is going to be from the millennials. It's going to be mobile. Our cell phones. Everyone uses our cell phones, mm-hmm. and we know it's going to be multicultural. And we want to, uh, first of all, we're going to find some more market intelligence by using, say, Facebook or Twitter and all that, by using the Internet and digital uh, techniques to gain and glean those um, market intelligence aspects on how we need to market to that group of people, but not only them, uh, the baby boomers, and also the new generation coming up. So we're excited about that, doing more market intelligence. The second thing we're going to do, we're going to have a more go-to-market approach. In the past, in 1985, when pork there, the white meat was the the new thing, when I started in pork production, we went directly to the consumer. It was basically a um, commodity marketing, if you will, a generic type of marketing. Now we're going to do more specific marketing. We're going to work more directly with the market. We're going to work directly with more retailers. We're going to work more directly with the packers and processors because they have marketing plans in place, but they need help. They need help uh, developing uh, social responsibility messages, mm-hmm. and that's what we're going to do. That's where our role, we feel, is important in the future to leverage those all-value producer dollars that they send a check off every year. We talk a lot about the millennials and the impact that they're having to the market. Can you be successful in marketing pork overall uh, without alienating you know, the, the baby boomer generation or in, in not being able to introduce yourself to the next generation? That's where it comes back to when we spoke at this news conference about we're going to market to all generations. Yes, we're going to focus more on millennials, but we know from that market research we're going to gain that it will help us focus on all types of generations, but we know we need to do some things in the future to get into that money market, as, as most marketers know, is the future of marketing. Again, we've been visiting with Terry O'Neill from Friend, Nebraska, now the president of the National Pork Board, and an update here from World Pork Expo in Des Moines. On the Rural Radio Network, Chad Moyer reporting. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. As we looked at the grains today, we did uh, close higher, but well off the highs of the day. Joining us is John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago and publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. We better at least focus on this corn market. Resistance levels, did we reach them? Well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, old crop corn September, you know, remember that's the last old crop month, hit four dollars. Oh, no, three ninety nine and a quarter, so not quite four dollars. And I think saw some significant selling. Producers are gonna be moving it on this rally. It's July delivering approaching and they've seen this this game before in wheat that uh, you know when these rallies come, especially if you have to sell it. And I'm not saying you, if you want to sell it in the new crop, that's a completely different question because you could store it. You have a lot of choices. But if you have to sell bushels by the end of June to meet that July delivery, you know you're up against a wall here, and you got to take that. So I think you know 390 for it really kind of hit a wall in the July, and then 390, uh, 399 on that September. I think we've hit our limit for the short term here, and um, now it'll be about what these forecasts show 
uh, late next week and what the WASDE says tomorrow. Soybean trade today was higher. Again, um, long-term, or should I say intermediate-term, is there negative vibes out there? Oh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I think beans have the story of, of, of much bigger supply than, say, cornwood. Um, but, you know, it's also a question of yield as well. When you start, when you start tacking on higher acres and you start dropping yield, you can lose carryout quicker that way, too. So, I don't know, the Pacific, or not the Pacific Northwest, the northwestern part of the, the Corn Belt there, the Dakotas, uh, western Minnesota, I mean, same folks up in northern Nebraska there. I mean, they are, uh, you know, facing a pretty good heat wave here in the next two to three days. And I think the market probably looks to discount that ahead of it. Uh, you know, buy the rumor, sell the fact really has been the story of this grain market for the last two years, going back to 2014 almost. So uh, if you've been a wheat trader, you know these, these gains can come really quick. And when they come, if you've got physical to sell, it's the time to move it. Um, I, I'm pleasantly surprised with what happened in, in the Minneapolis wheat contract, though. So I think that stays high. I think that keeps wheat up. And in a sense, I think keeps a floor under corn, but I wouldn't be surprised to see maybe a pullback into the low 380s for July. What's your comment before a report tomorrow? Well, wheat is really the wild card. The rest of the markets, I don't think we'll see much of a surprise. I don't think they'll factor in a lot of this weather, but for wheat, they could. And, you know, we've been a while since we had a really bullish wheat report. That could be the, the factor that maybe pushes the rest of the grain complex are. Thanks, John. John Payne, Senior Marketing Advisor. An analyst for Daniels Ag Marketing in Chicago. Go to danielsagmarketing.com for more information. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network.